This is The Huddle Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Stolo. Today I'm talking with Philip Horvath. Purpose has been central to Philip's work for decades. With over 30 years of mindfulness practice and studies in yoga, alchemy, shamanism, transformational and integral psychology, and various wisdom traditions, Philip is a well-rounded and practical mindfulness teacher able to connect with a variety of audiences. Combined with the latest findings from neuroscience, systems theory, and various innovation methodologies, Philip inspires, teaches, and advises changemakers, from artists to entrepreneurs, and some of the most innovative and future-oriented organizations around, creating the future with purpose. We are living in a time of volatility. Our ability to adapt to the changing landscape of our lives is one of the hallmarks of a life lived well. I talk with Philip about what it means to experience a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, and how it can invite us to live more openly and creatively. Talking about this world of VUCA, which I think you introduced me to the world of VUCA. I knew the world of VUCA because I live the world of VUCA. I was going to say you live in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's like, welcome we, to the world of VUCA. We're all living La Vida VUCA now, you know, whether you want to or not. <laughs> I mean, short form, share with people who have never heard of the acronym VUCA. What is VUCA? Sure. Because it's actually originally a military term, and it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And it was kind of invented for those war theaters that were not predictable, right? Because when you think about war, back in the day, we had these generals on hills making big decisions about moving battalions left and right. And then wars like Korea and Vietnam, etc., kind of short, and even like during the Second World War already, Hitler found out that you know small groups of you know very determined citizens can be a real issue for an army right and suddenly there are situations that are volatile they're changing from moment to moment you don't really know what's happening it can happen very quickly right and you have a lot of uncertainty right where even if you have data you might not know what's happening somewhere right and then there's complexity in the sense of multiple actors right where there's different people involved in multiple different parties or war fractions you know that you now have to take into consideration and finally, with that, some ambiguity, because you don't really know who's good and bad anymore. And this very simplistic, you know, whitehead versus blackhead cowboy kind of thing, that kind of simplistic world doesn't exist, right? And that was military realized that already in the 60s, 70s, in the kind of the wake of the Cold War, where we saw this big theater where it was about mutual sure destruction, right, of technology. But then the actual war theaters became these very volatile and uncertain, complex and ambiguous environments, mm-hmm. right? which is why we have the special forces, where we have you know, SEALs, et cetera, because we, they needed soldiers that are trained to deal with that, that are not just a command and execute kind of people, right, who fulfill on some expectation, but who are actually units of operation that are just capable of decision-making on their own in congruence with what's going on. Right? So you have to have a more distributed and different kinds of way of organizing yourself as well. Linkages back to chaos theory? To some extent. I mean, if you're not chaos theory, came out of cybernetics, right, which was the early advances of systems theory, which actually came out of biology originally, right, when we decided to figure out how can we understand systems, right, from the simple, something goes in, something goes on, something comes out, right, what happens if we have more complex systems that are interacting with each other, right, and this is where we go into cybernetics and later chaos theory, right, which were mathematical models of trying to to describe these apparent chaotic or semi-chaotic uh, uh, situations, right? Like water squirrels, for example, trying to understand 
that, I mean, the math of those water squads is immensely complex and we're just beginning now to really have sort of the supercomputer capacities to deal with that, right? And to do better weather predictions in terms of patterns and these kind of chaotic structures. And there's also an understanding or a new awareness of interdependence, which I think we are beginning to understand as humans right now as well, right? Where we're seeing ourselves in this planetary context suddenly and what happens in Beijing makes a difference in Boston and makes a difference in Berlin and makes a difference in Big Bangalore, time. right? And we, we're, we're realizing that now, right? And we're realizing that we are in this ecosystem of mutual independence, right? yeah. including all the resources we've been wasting. Just yesterday we had Earth Overshoot Day, well, just yesterday, we used up yet again more than the complete amount of resources we have available for this year in less than half a year. Yeah. Right? And so this this is all going to have you know macro consequences. Let's take the VUCA principle and bring it back down to a lot of the work you do in organizational culture. And then I also want to talk about it in the context of like inner culture. Because you would think, well, if the world is that volatile and ambiguous and predictable... Well, we might as well just all throw caution to the wind and uh, <laughs> run in the streets naked. And hey, look, curious, let the chips right? fall yeah. where they may. There's a spiritual revival that comes with accepting this world. And that's kind of where I want to lead us to. So let's talk about it first in the context of an organization, a culture, a group of people coming together with a collective aim or a purpose. Where does VUCA tie into that? Well, actually, you just said it beautifully. It's a common aim and a common thing what created corporations, right? It was essentially multiple actors that said, let's incorporate as one and act under a common purpose. As a result of that, when you do things, right, when you think about the progression of an organization, at first is a bunch of people getting together saying, hey, let's figure this out and let's model through this, right? And everything you do is a new thing and everything is all hands on deck, right? And you're trying to make that happen as a startup. I think you might be able to relate, right? And then you have beginning to have repeatable processes, right? And this is really the idea of organization is to say, hey, look, we're doing this every single day. How can we make this process more efficient and repeatable? Mm -hmm. right? And eventually you get into the fact where you're like, okay, this process works like that. Let's get some process discipline going here where we really write down what this process is. We've understand the different steps. We look at efficiencies inside of the process, we begin to optimize this process. Right? And this is what an organization does, right? It's essentially the optimization of repeatable processes, right? And it's geared towards driving the efficiency of these repeatable processes. Now that's in a way opposite to innovation, right? And trying something new because that works really well when things are relatively stable, right? And if you think about the last 50 years in West, some of the Western countries have been relatively stable, right? I mean, the rest of the world looks at us saying, what do you mean stable? You know, I mean, there's been plenty of things happening, but in quotation marks, our world, this was the first generation, really. Our parents' generation was the first that had relative stability. Right? And you had long product cycles, right? or even like back in the day of Henry Ford, you know, you sold one car per generation. You didn't sell a new model every year, right? You sold one car and it lasted 30 years or whatever, right? And so these cycles have gotten much shorter, right? And so now, as we find ourselves in the world of VUCA, right, we now need to also think about how do we organize ourselves for that? Right? Because organizing for efficiency works really well when you have relative stability around it and you have a bunch of uncertainty, then your system becomes really frail, right? Because if you think about even like a supply chain, right, where you begin from resources here and you have an end product here, right? If you make this supply chain highly efficient, any little disturbance in it can upset it. And suddenly it's not working anymore at all, right? Versus if you want to build it anti-fragile, right? If you want to build it resilient, 
you have slack, you have extra, you have buffer, right? And if you look at nature, nature tends to do both, right? It, 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 in its experiments, it's very vast, like if you think about like seeds, for example, right, or pollen, right? It goes, pow, take a thousand of these and hopefully one of them will make it, right? And, yeah. and you're hoping that's- It's got a lot of backup plans, of, so to speak. There's a lot of backup plans, yeah. right? And even here, yeah. pow, there's 7 billion humans, right? There's a lot of backup plans here, right? Yeah. Because not all of them are going to make it. Yeah. Right. And uh, so life has backup plans, right? And life is actually anti-fragile for the most part, right? And has learned how to be resilient in face of uncertainty and change, right? Now, any system, you know, the longer it exists, the more encrusted and crystallized it gets, right? And so suddenly when you're talking to someone who's been doing the same job for the last 20 years, because this is how they learn how to do that in business school, right? right? And they're still doing it that way. And they're still relying on the same rough Excel spreadsheets have been used for 20 years. And I mean, there's not much uh, resilience there, right? Yeah. Because suddenly if things change, that's like pulling the feet out from underneath their rug, uh, the rug out from underneath their feet, right? Which, you know, a lot of people experienced last year, right? Because a lot of people were used to business as usual for the most part, and suddenly things drastically changed. And for a lot of people for the first time in their lives, right? Who've, especially the people who've been in doing all the things right. Right? I mean, for them, it wasn't really the worst experience, right? Because if you're doing all the right things and suddenly it's not working, then you're like, okay, man, damn, I've always done the right things. I don't even know how to do the wrong things. Yeah. Right? I don't even know how to try something new. I don't even know how to fail. Right? And this whole idea of failure culture that you hear in startup culture and startup environments, it's not about, yay, how awesome is it to fail? Nobody wants to do that. Right? But it's understanding that if we want to try new things, we have to risk. And then it becomes a question of how can I minimize my innovation risk, right? How can I minimize how, how that works? And this goes a little bit into the cultural topic of now understanding that in a world where there was relative stability, this trickle-down thing worked, right? Like the boss on top got there because he was the expert, right? or in a little bit of power, you know, opportunism and diplomacy and roughness got in there, right? And he was expected to know where to go. But the top people they're supposed to know is set strategy. We'll have some experts that tell them some trends and things, and then we know what's going on and we set the direction and everybody else executes on that. Now, if you think about the new world, anything that's rational, any rational decision, think about that way, any rational decision that's made in an organization can really be done by AI better than by most humans. Right? If you're going purely by rationality. Right. right? Because purely, purely on data points, you mean? Purely on data points, yeah. right? I mean, a pocket calculator is better at doing right. mental stuff than we are, right? right? I mean, right. And the computers and the AI we have now, but it's purely rational decisions, they're actually better. Now, of course, this brings out the fact that we haven't been rational, right? So if I have the AI and I set it off to really look at a bunch of data, it's going to be super biased, right? And whether it's with gender or ethnicity or any of these things, right? Or any data points, because it's just looking at historical data. Right? So there's something else that now needs to happen where we need to take ownership of what we want this to look like rather than just what it has been looking like, right? And this is where we go into now different kind of cultures that you need to uh, be effective in a, in a VUCA environment, right? Because this trickle-down purpose doesn't work anymore because things change here and things change here and things change here and things change here. And if you wait for that information to go through all the channels and all the multiple times it's been ignored until it finally maybe makes it to the top, we have played all that telephone game as a kid, right? When you're like, hear one thing and hear the next thing and the next thing, and it has nothing to do with what happened here anymore, right? And then you make a decision, or actually you go through your normal decision-making process, and you're like, oh, we'll, we'll wait for next next fiscal year to make that strategic decision. And by then, this is gone or over. 
and or become a liability. I love current existing businesses where even cash cows are going to be liability tomorrow. I think about, you know, trying to insure in a building in Miami Beach right now. Yeah. It's a liability already. Sure. Right? That, that awesome condo that you bought, that was a great investment. Right now, you're lucky if you get what you paid for it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is this VUCA principle, is it understood to be just like an existential reality? So did we, I mean, was the period of mm-hmm. pseudo stability, like call it an anomaly of Exception. sorts? I, I would say so. I mean, if you look at, if you look at history, right? I mean, there's been barely ever, I mean, there's been an acceleration that happens to so a couple of things, but right? a, the, the periods of stability were because of the lack of information. But if you think about the acceleration of and the access to information that we now have, it's it's mind-boggling, right? I mean, every day I'm I'm looking at like you know science monitors and stuff, and I'm seeing every day these like new things that weren't possible even a couple of years ago. They're suddenly possible, right? Whether it's like sonic tweezers lifting lifting things up with pure sound, right? Next thing you know, we build pyramids, right? But like this whole thing, so like you know, what do quantum physics? What's what's happening in quantum computing right now? What's happening in synthetic biology right now? What's happening in nanotechnology right now? There's so many different areas, and they're all overlapping and informing each other. The other day I read about an AI that came up with a new way of doing a quantum experiment that was so much cooler than what the quantum researchers had ever thought about, right? And it was an AI who came up with it in quotation marks, not that there was say, volition involved in that, right? But there's now these completely new ways of doing things that we get to now adjust for and really ask ourselves, what makes us human now, right? And instead of having a bunch of people execute on stuff, like in the olden days of business, we now have essentially a whole bunch of different business processes that have their own life cycles that are mostly automated or delegated while we still have, you know, geo arbitrage and things like that. And we can really split things out, right? But they're automated and delegated. And the real job is going to become to understand what's actually a good process, right? And to understand the customer and understand how to add value to their life and understand what's going on in their life, what's going on in the life of your vendors and in their different trends and what's possible there now, right? So you now need people who actually look at what they do every day and think about ultimately, how can I obsolete myself? Right? that was always my approach when I was an efficiency consultant. My initial job was always to say, okay, cool. How can I not do this again? Right? Like, how can I have something automate this? Right? And that's the kind of questions that we get to ask ourselves now. And that means we have to create together in a different way, right? What was, because we had sort of execution teams over here, Right with the mindset of I fulfill, right? Tell me what to do and I'll do it, boss, kind of thing. Right. right. Teacher, professor, boss, mama, daddy, right? Tell me what yeah. to do and I'll do it. From that mindset into, uh, wow, I'm a human being. I have the capacity to create. I'm a creator, right? I can create things on this planet. And what is meaningful for me to create? And how can I create positive impact in the world? Right. Or, and even for my vendor, and it doesn't have to don't always have to save the trees and save the oceans and everything. But like, how can I make the life of my customer better? Yeah. Right. And those are the questions to ask now. And then to say, how can I create a process that understandably has a life cycle, meaning it'll die one day too. So instead of assuming that my business model is going to be my core business, it's going to last forever. Right. To realize that that core business might not be there in the future. And I always need to continue to also run experiments and, and test new things and then develop new ideas. Right? Yeah. And that's the exciting environment that we're in right now. Yeah, it's a very relevant analogy to the work that we're doing in Huddle and in the health space because health has been a very top-down model forever. You know, this this 
image of uh, the all-knowing health system that dispenses healthcare down to the people, which we call patients. You know, the, and of course we call them patients because they're always waiting for what comes down from the top. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the etymology of the word is that people don't. Well, and it's, and it's passive. Right? Pass, you're, exactly. you're, you're, you're enduring yeah. actually it's exactly. like the patience is enduring something that's been done to you which right? is why Versus we invented actually... waiting rooms okay. i mean it's, it's <laughs> perfect it's an absolute if you look at the cycle of the the mm. the language of the culture of health it speaks entirely mm. to this uh, top-down ecosystem uh, patients prescriptive Sorry. authoritarian waiting rooms patients are people who wait for, to dispense mm. care and of mm. course on the flip side, in what what some would call the human development movement, the wellness movement, there's this new conversation about an empowerment model, which is, wait a second, health is my state of being in the world. How could it ever possibly be dispensed to me? Like, why could why would I ever imagine that someone is, you know, it's trickling down from the sky and I'm just waiting for it to fall on me, so to speak. I think it's a very relevant application. So what does it mean to be a creative innovative experimenter in your own life when it comes to your state of health and your, your state of well-being. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the key here is to consider autonomy and autonomy is earned, right? I mean, there's a reason, I mean, on the one hand, there's the history of, you know, permission, right? Like where the liege decided on, you know, who you can and cannot connect with, or the Catholic church decided that the only ways to heal yourself would be with leeches and cupping, you know, or bloodletting. You know what I mean? So this is like what's right and not right, right? And it always had to do with what's human, right? Like until Descartes kind of separated body and spirit, you know, and made it this artificial distinction, right? So he wasn't allowed to, to touch the bodies, right? Because they were given from God, right? And so we had a very different model of what it means to be human, right? And I think today we are beginning to realize that we get to, to have a certain autonomy and earn that autonomy for taking responsibility for ourselves and for our health, right? So instead of, you know, being uh, a subject to, you know, leave, to my leash somewhere, right, that tells me what to do and what to eat and who to be, right, I now get to decide that on my own. And it also carries responsibility of doing that. I mean, this is part of the reason why people have chosen I fulfill over I create, because I fulfill is a bit more comfortable most of the time, right. Right? right? Versus I create, you run into walls, as you know, and you can have a lot of noise, you can have problems, right? And you're, and also even you're, you're integrating new information all the time. But right? for me, if you're about healing, right? I mean, all life is constantly expanding and integrating new information. When you integrate new information, you have to make yourself whole again. So the whole idea of making yourself whole again, right? when I have new information or new knowledge, then I need to integrate that. Because if I don't, if I'm not making myself whole, if I'm not healing, right, in that sense, then I'm either compartmentalizing or depressing that information, which is going to make me be depressed, right? And like right now, for example, if you look at the, the world, most people are aware that weather is changing, right? Most people are aware that we can continue to live the way we've been living, right? Most people are aware of it, but it's incredibly overwhelming to even begin to think about it, right? Because it's such a huge thing. And what am I as a little tiny human being going to do about that? 
right? When there's this job of politicians or experts, I come back to that idea of someone knowing more than you, right, about these things. And so we depress that information, right? And we become depressed. It's not by chance that anxiety, depression, suicide, et cetera, are all on the rise for the last few decades, right? Not just because of social media, but in parallel, funny enough, with social media, right? Because now we have this whole comparative bullshit going on, right? But people have been getting all this new information, this new awareness, and they're all pushing it down and playing small, right? Because they're not looking at themselves as creators. They're looking for someone to tell them what to fulfill on, right? But to actually begin to heal yourself is to take responsibility for your life. To say, I, this is my system. This is we talked a little bit about systems theory earlier, right? But this is my system. Stuff goes in, stuff goes on, stuff goes out. And if you look at systems theory, one of the early simple things is garbage in, garbage out. Right? If I feed my, my system, you know, all kinds of crap, then my body's going to have a much higher, harder time processing that. A lot more of my energy is going to go into that and not be available to be creative, to expand, to learn, to do other things, right? Because I'm simply dealing with the fact that my body is really full after this big lunch right now. You know what I mean? Then you're not going to use your best capacity, right? And then the output is going to be crap too, right? And so this is really where we can aware of and this is what i wish i'm kind of baffled that we don't teach our children that when we talk about physical ed in school right and most of the time it's you know terror for most kids right and it's like you know competition and gaming and 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 feeling bad and being shamed for your body and all kinds of things that are happening in physical ed instead of actually educating people on oh this is your body look yeah because we're not teaching body awareness we're teaching body functioning at best yeah function (laughs) movement those have value because you could be moving and your body will always be in some state of movement at least for a good chunk of the day but your body awareness could be nil and that could that alone could create a cascade of health-related issues. Interesting, look at Simone Bile, the story that just emerged recently, you know, one of the most qualified athletes in the world. Like, who could only ever fathom the amount of time this young woman spent towards moving her body, you know, honing this instrument into, like, this perfect flipping machine. And the moment arises, and she's like, my awareness will not invite me to step onto the mat and execute. That's a really good example of like the mechanics of the body, the mechanics of performance versus this idea of adaptability, awareness, what is going on in my eternal system. And most athletes will tell you they have they spend a huge chunk of their time playing in that space. At least okay. quite a number of them do. It's interesting to come back to this, the question of VUCA and the question of authority. You know, I think the pandemic has probably been a very good example of this VUCA world, the unpredictability of like, watch me just drop a pebble into this <laughs> pond and the ripple effect. But what, what I'm interested in, in hearing your perspective on is like, let's think about the like talk about the vaccine. So the vaccine is a good example of like a health intervention that's being used to help squash this this pandemic and of course you have lots of people who are like i don't want to take it i don't believe the science you're not going to dictate to me what i do you know is that anti-authoritarianism is that creativity is that the assertion like where does the the scientific rigor and the evidence-based information and the facts tie back into this kind of creative outlet like tie those threads together for people okay Big one. Um, <laughs> Tough one. <laughs> yeah, because it's an interesting collision of ideas. So it's like, look, we created a vaccine to solve this problem. And some people are like, yes, we want this problem solved because 
whatever motives they have. Business as usual. I just want to get the hell out of the house. I want to see my friend. Who knows what their motives are, but they have motives. And then some people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's my right to choose. You can impose whatever restrictions you want on me. That's fine. And I'm still not going to you know, run a lottery. Tell me I can't go to a bar. I'm still not going to do it because I don't trust you. I don't trust that this is a remedy. How do we resolve that? That's a, that's a couple of things. I mean, I think that there is a moment of you know rational science. Right? I mean, we've, we've worked pretty hard to have science and all that stuff, and it's great. And I think it's important that you remember that science is not ever. A good scientist would never tell you this is true or false. Mm-hmm. A good scientist would tell you, this is the experiment I've run. This is the hypothesis I've had. These are the results I've had. These are some statistics that I can give you around that. Yeah. Right. And if you want to know more, let's find out more. Right. And really, this is, I think, important to best guess. Uh, you, best guess. Best guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, it's and always think, a best and guess. Right. And there's there's no like certainty. And I think this is yeah. a problem, right? Because we have a bunch of people who are afraid, right? Because this is stressful, right? And your amygdala gets activated when there's potential threat to life. Mm-hmm. Your amygdala gets activated. You go into that fight or flight response. It's really freeze, right? Flight, fight. Fawn, right? And you see that in our politics, you see it in people's behavior, how they've gone through those stages, right? At first, you try and ignore it, and you're like, no, there's not really anything here, right? And then it's like, oh, can, can, we, can we just run away? Can we just, we, we can tell ourselves some news stories, right? But this only happens in China, right? right? And then it went like, okay, now we need to fight this thing. We need to fight this thing, right? And we're fighting it, right? And right now, most countries are going into this, okay, cool, we'll compromise, we'll figure out this. And it's kind of this like fawning. It's not a, actual agreement compromise it's like okay just don't hurt me too bad okay right it's like that kind of thing right and so most people are still in that and when you're in amygdala activation you're not rational right because the majority of your blood is in your arms and legs and not in your brain right or in your organs right you're trying to fight or flight and there's not much thinking there right and so when people are activated on that stage they react from a very strong emotional point right and this is why i mentioned the word trust earlier it's like trust not trust right it's like either either or it's like right or wrong I want certainty. Is this, is this a thing to do or should I not do this? Yeah. Right? But the first important point is, I think, to have multiple perspectives. I think that we live in a world where people have the right to have a freedom of opinion and can have a gazillion of opinions. That, and they might be wrong and they have the right to be wrong. So I think that's important. I think that's important that everyone asks themselves a question right, and understands that there is no right answer for you. There's your answer for you. Right. And when I, you know, I went through the same question of because a lot of my spiritual friends said, hey, man, you don't need to be vaccinated, right? Your body can heal itself, terrain theory and all that. And actually, you know what? I believe in that. I actually honestly believe that for the most part, my body should probably be fine. Now, did I get vaccinated? Yeah, sure. Right? Because honestly, it made my life easier. And I'm still waiting to see if, you know, this is going to sync with 5G and we start hearing the voice of Bill in my head, you know, which would be awesome, you know, because then finally I can stop creating, right? Then I can just be a good employee and fulfilled, right? And I'll just be a drone and cog in the machine, right? But I, I also told my spiritual friends, if my body, if my spiritual capacity is to overcome a virus, then I can also overcome this vaccine, yeah. right? And so if I'm really believing from a pure spiritual perspective, this is my reality and I'm not even sure that there is an objective reality out there, but I'm just perceiving this, right, and consciousness and pure consciousness and all these things, great, what stories am I telling myself, mm-hmm. right? Am I telling myself, and this is where we, a lot of these conspiracy theories and things come in, is because we're trying to have certainty, we're trying to have a sense of control in VUCA, right, coming back to, because uncertainty is really, really hard for people to bear. Like yeah. a tolerance of ambiguity, yes. for the most part, is horrible. It's really difficult because ambiguity and certainty will trigger your amygdala, yeah. right? So you will go into a stress state. And it's not 
And it's actually to some extent it's good because you want a bit of adrenaline to start thinking about an issue when an issue is in front of you, right? So you want to actually be woken up by that stress. And the question is, how do you deal with it from there on out, right? Are you now just being stressed all the time, right? And you're just becoming a fest of cortisol all day long, right? And ultimately go get sick. Like how medical review years ago said 70% of doctor's visits are related to stress, right? Are you going to go there? Or become a fascist and say, no, this is the truth, my truth, and it's the only truth. And I looked it up on these three YouTube channels. You know what I mean? Uh, are you going to go there, right? Just to feel good about yourself again and have that sense of certainty? Or can we find better ways, right? And really, this is where learning how to live la vida vuca, right, is so important. Learning how to build, deal with anxiety and, and deal with uncertainty and, and say, hey, you know what? It's okay. I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's okay not to know. Yeah. Like I've actually done my very best over the last year not to have an opinion on this issue. And I still don't have an opinion on this issue. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I got vaccinated because it was the thing to do and it yeah. made sense. You know what I mean? And from all the science I can tell, it seems to make sense, you know, and I'm going to trust yeah. that if there was a really horrible conspiracy that tried to put us all with trackers there, you know what I mean? then uh, that right. somehow might have leaked at this point because it's a really big conspiracy, right? And of course, there's funny little things, like if you look up a Microsoft patent, X6060606, right, 666, if you look up that patent, it's indeed a freaking little thing that's an <laughs> application of a quantum tracker that can be applied right. within a vaccination, right? I mean, it's silly little things, you know what I mean? And to say, hey, you know what, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know, and I don't care to know, and this is... When you think about these conspiracy things, I think there's two outcomes, right? And I think this goes with stress in general, with uncertainty of dealing with it. Either you end up at some point sitting in the corner of your room with a little aluminum foil head going, they're reading my thoughts, everybody's against me, they're reading my thoughts. Or at some point you say, you know what, this might all be true. What am I doing? What am I creating? What am I doing with this? Right? Because it's the most empowering thing you can do is if something freaks you out, if you're afraid of something, if you're scared of something, if you're worried about something, do something. It can be a tiny little thing, but do something about it. Right? And that's when we take our power back. Right? And this is where we take our power of healing back. Right? When we become whole again ourselves, when we decide to take on that journey of being life, of making ourselves whole yeah. again and again and again and again. And understand that there's this romantic notion. It's like, once I found the one, everything's going to be okay. Once I'm vaccinated, everything's going to be okay. Once I have this job, it's going to be okay. Once COVID is over, it's going to be okay. Right? That's a romantic delusion. Right, this cre and it creates codependence right, because now you're dependent on these expectations right? rather than just saying, you know what, I don't know what's going on. Like I start with the only truth I actually really know, I know one truth, because I seem to be here right now. And everything else, likelihoods, probabilities, right? If I take this and let it go, it'll probably fall down very likely with 9.81 meters per second. And as a good scientist, I can try and set up a hypothesis and a null hypothesis and try and disprove that it's going to fall down. And if I can't do that, then I can say, hey, with, with in all likelihood, this will continue, this will fall down in an all likelihood with 9.81 meters per second. Yeah. That's all I can tell you. But I don't know if that's even real, if I'm even here, if all of these things and being able to be okay with that. Yeah. I think that's the new kind of healing that we get to do now, right? where we get to be okay with knowing that we're here right now in this moment. And that's why presence training or some of the other things that people teach on huddle, you know, is so important, right? I mean, and even, you know, things like Brian's class on pain, right? To understand that if I'm having pain in my system, it's probably because I'm, I'm tight somewhere and there's Titus is probably coming from an emotion of contraction and this contraction is probably coming from a thought. And if I change my thought, then this contraction is going to go away and maybe the pain is going to go away, right? Those kind of relationships, right? Or look at what uh, no, uh, Robert went through, right? And his whole experience and trauma and death in the family and, and really 
these kind of things, but like overcoming that, right? dealing with that, acknowledging that it's not, it, it happened. It's not about trying to, it's all good, but I'm not trying to like sweet talk it or be all like, you know, magical thinking about it, but to embrace the fact that these things happen. Life is brutal. Yeah. Life kills. Right? I mean, our life expectancy has gone up only because we don't have as many wars and violent crimes and diseases as we used to. Right? We've always been able to live 80 years long, right? but we died at 30 because there was a lot of things that killed you. Today, there's a few less things that kill you. And so people live longer and some of them want to even live forever. But that's bullshit because that would take away the value of being alive. Right? And it is actually important that we die. And as I said earlier, this understanding that life cycles, everything dies. Yeah. If it's a business process or a person. Right? Yeah. One of the things that you were talking that I was thinking about was the power in choosing, not the power in controlling the outcome, not the power in knowing where it will go from. But to your point, it's like there are a lot of people, even in the vaccine conversation, who are not exercising a power to choose. They're exercising a power to believe something um, to your point, that they believe is certain. Look, I, I took the vaccine as well. I took the vaccine on two very basic premises. One is, right now it appears this is the best evidence. It's not absolute evidence. It's just simply the best evidence. And an honest scientist will tell you, this is the best evidence we have in this moment. And science is constantly changing and evolving, as any discipline would be. And then the second one is is interdependence for me, which means that... This is not just a choice I'm I'm exercising for myself. It's a choice I'm exercising for others. And, and with respect Relationship. to... Relationship. Yeah, I'm in relation with others. So whether I believe that my body is well-equipped to fend this off, we know there are many bodies out there that are not. So I bear a responsibility to those bodies as well because I'm cohabitating this planet with them. Those are the two things that drove my decision. But at the end of the day, what I think this comes back to is the power in choosing, not the power in being right, not the power in knowing exactly what the outcome is, because these camps are warring over who's right. Yeah, and of course, the more we war over this, you want to talk about polarizing? I mean, it, this happens. It's, gonna keep going. yeah. it's just like, it's just good. keep pulling people apart. Well, this usually happens when you're not hurt. Right? Like if you think about a conversation, right? and one person says something, and then the other person is actually acknowledging what they heard and what they learned and building on it. It goes, no, but I think this. And then they don't feel hurt, and then they're going to say the same thing again a little louder, and then they're going to say the same thing a little louder, and then they're going to say it a little bit louder. And as I said, it's only polarizer. But if you feel about polarization, that's second chakra, right? That's like, not like. Move towards pleasure, move away from pain. Yeah. And right? it's your limbic system, coming back to that amygdala, yes. right? It's your limbic system of good, not good. Yeah. Right? But if you're rational, it's always great, right? Because rational is actually the part that sees that there's this and this, right? If I'm in three, we always have perspective on the dimension below us. If I'm in the third dimension, I look down and I actually see one and two. I see a distinction between these and I see both of them. Yeah. Right? And if I'm in four, then I can see myself observing one and two as the observer, right? And this is really the place where the choice comes in. Yeah. Right? I have to actually be on that level, I have to be present to that. Exactly. I have to be present to that, understand that I'm full of cognitive biases and I can't make a rational decision as much as I would like to. You know what I mean? But understanding that I can be as rational as possible about these two sides and think about that and make a choice, right? But this is not where in second chakra, it's like, tell me if it's right or wrong, right? But at this point, it's to say, I see both sides. I have decided based on the data I have that for me, this is the right decision, yeah. right? And this is that if you think about relational intelligence and that sense of self, right? That, that chooser, 
has to be a person to choose. And this might sound really harsh, but the majority of people is not even awake to that. Right? They're constantly just being pulled and pulled and reacting to things that are in front of them. Right? But the choices they make is, uh, do you want the red product widget or the blue product widget? You know what I mean? Which widget would you like to have? Right? And they think they're making choices. Right. right? And it's not really choices. It's essentially go buy this widget and you're giving the illusion of choice so you buy one of them. Right? I mean, that's a, a very natural thing of how our cognitive bias works, right? If someone gives you like three things and says, which one do you want? You're going to pick one of them, right? Even if you don't want any of them, really, right. you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> but you're like, you, have that, yeah. that, you ABC, think that that's your choice now, D. right? Yeah, not a lot of people also, You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this is, this is coming back to that autonomy. And I think that that's where personal development and all this work is so important because it's about, always about being in relationship with I and I and I and other, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm in relationship with myself, with whatever, this might be universe, God, nature, life, call it whatever you want to, right? And the relationships I have and the people around me, right? And to be willing to, to be a conscious chooser requires a sense of I, right? And this is where most people don't want to go here because if I think about I, everything else is not I, right? Other things, there's alles in Latin, right? Reality. So there's I and reality. And I is a tiny little thing and reality is really, really big and it's really overwhelming, yeah. right? And it's a, it's, a, it's a scary place, right? Because if you're not connected, right, that, that sense of disconnection from the tribe, the doing something different from others, being excluded, that was a death sentence back then and kind of is today too when you look at our homeless population, right? But it's a death sentence to be excluded from the tribe. And so we, we, we want to belong, right? Like uh, Eric Fromm talked about this, you know, the three reasons we do uh, things really is, or like the, the three ways we try and feel connected and belonging is conformity, right? erotic pleasures, and uh, intoxication. Right? Because in those moments, I feel like part of everything again. Right? If I'm part of a, you know, if I'm dancing along the rock concert with everybody, that's not much different from walking down the aisle and you know, doing the things that they did here and it is in Germany, go in Germany or in any military parade. Right, because it's that sense of belonging. I'm okay because I do the things that everybody else is doing. Outcome is right. a little different, but yes, I, I hear you. <laughs> it's a little different, but you know, but from from a from a, from from a tribal a perspective, perspective yeah. psychological tribal yeah. perspective, it's not that different. Right, yeah. it doesn't matter if you belong to a cult or a clan or a sanctified religion or a political party. You know, what I mean, it's just that thing that you identify with as your tribe. Right. And this is also the, what's the biggest tribe you can see. Right, if the biggest tribe you can see is national, and this is where we're beginning to wake up that there is a transnational context, right? But a lot of, a lot of people, national is still the biggest they can possibly grasp. And yeah. they just want to belong. And in order to belong, in order not to freak out about this big, big world out there, they want to build a wall around where they belong, right? So they know this is just us here, right? This is where it should be okay. But it's not, it's never. And this is that romantic delusion, right? And overcoming that and going from eros to agape, right? But we don't just do what we do in order to belong and afraid of being individuals, but instead of that own being individuals and choose to relate and be conscious of our relationships, like what you were talking about, mm-hmm. right? to really be aware of the fact that I'm related to everything and everybody around me and that yeah. I am in every moment creating the future, right? With what I'm leaving behind, with all my footprints, and with all my handprints, what I'm creating here. Right? Yeah. I'm also always doing that, right? And the question is, what are you doing with your hands? What are you leaving behind on your feet? Yeah. That's why I like, you know, we would, you and I have been talking about outer and inner culture and the, the syncing up of those because, again, like this thing outside of myself is being co created by this thing inside of myself. You know, we're always in this magical dance of 
both shaping our universe together and then that's growing out of whatever garden bed we're nurturing internally. And you said the key word of nurturing, right? I mean, I actually like to think of culture as a verb mm. because people don't want culture. They want to connect a tribe. They want to feel belonging. They want to feel productive. They want to have engagement, right? They want those things. And then it's like, oh, we need to do this Fulfilled. culture thing. Fulfilled, Fulfilled, right? Yeah, meaningful, meaningful, self-actualizing, self-realizing, all these things, right? That's what we really want. We don't want culture. But in order to get that, we have to culture that, right? And it's like, it is coming back to the agricultural background of culture, right? We're culturing something. We are practicing to be something, behaving in new ways. So if I want to change, coming back to our original starting point of the organizational culture, right? That's just a crystallization of behaviors, right? So if I, individuals choose, right, and they actually shift their mindset, look at the world in a different way, choose to behave in a different way, then sooner or later, if they keep doing that repeatedly, eventually we'll have new systems and new structures and new kinds of organizations, yeah. right? Because even organization is kind of a wrong word because it's a noun. It should be organizing. Right? We're organizing ourselves. We're organizing ourselves around a purpose that we're collectively creating. Mm -hmm. right? And we're constantly doing that. We're always doing that. That's what nature does. Right? The trees are organizing with the water and the uh, mushrooms and the roots, right? And all of that stuff is constantly organizing itself. Right. Right? Right. Like organ, organism, right? We're an organism that's organizing itself. Right? And we're a living organism as humans. Right? We're a superhuman, super superorganism humanity. Well, that's not much different from a superorganism anthill or super, you know, termites or any other swarm type animal, right? Bees, etc. We're just a higher level version of that, with a bit more conscious, and now also with more capacity and importance to make autonomous decisions across the system, rather than just being insectoid, Borg-like, executing on stuff. Right? We're meant to have individuals that are creating in different points in the system. Right? And this is what we're growing into right now as humanity, where we're being invited to say, hey, people, great, let's step up. Right? We really like to always, you know, it's, uh, is it well, 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 grow up, show up, grow up, show up. Grow up, wake up, show up. Wake up, grow up, show up. This was it. Right? Yeah. Wake up, right? Awareness, wake up, become yeah. aware of the world around you, right? Yeah. And, and yourself and the fact that you are a creator. Wake up, right? Grow up in the sense of take responsibility for what you become aware of. Right? Look around you. What can you do? How are you participating actively? And in the end, it's showing up in the sense of actually doing that, being in ownership of your life here. Yeah. Right? And we're all invited to be in ownership of our lives. And this disempowerment that's making us sick right, is partly that. Right? Whether it's of political parties, religions, or hospital administrations. <clears throat> right? it's, it's that thing that makes us sick instead of healing us. Right? Yeah. And so we really they get to focus on that and the healing first and foremost is an inside inside job. Right? My my internal cultural operating system, you're you're responsible for it. And my mother, father, preacher, teacher gave it to me right? when I was a kid. Right when you're about four, that's when your social system is consciously installed. Right, that's the good thing to do and how to be a good little boy and a good little girl. Right, <clears throat> but eventually, at least in your twenties or something, there's that individuation process. Right after you've on, you know, parents were suddenly not gods anymore and your peers weren't gods anymore. Eventually you're on your own, right? And then you have to choose who you want to be and how you want to relate and how you're going to practice your religion in the sense of religarin, reconnecting, right? Like how are you reconnecting to yourself and to the world around you, yeah. right? And what are you practicing? What, are you, what behaviors are you culturing, right? What behaviors are you nurturing? What vision of yourself are you nurturing? And what are you visioning for each other? 
and this is where we come into teams and into organizations, how we choose to treat each other. But we can say, this is how it's done around here. So I can't do anything. <laughs> or you can start showing up different. I hear that. I know. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I, believe, I hear that all the time. Right? Yeah. My, my job is to change culture in organizations. Ah, this is how we've always done it. It's like, yeah, of course, we've always done it that yeah. way. Sure. Have you always <clears throat> had the situation that you have now? No, right? right. So let's maybe try something new. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, and I understand it's scary. Right, which is why concepts like psychological safety are so important. Like when we do the trainings and workshops, right? That's my one number one priority is to create an environment of psychological safety because it, it is scary, right? To transform. Transforming means death, no way, right? Everything's <clears throat> always changing, but transformations are these jumps, right? These quantum jumps in a way. And in order to jump from point A to point X, right? I have to die in point A. I have to give up who I was. Yeah. I have to give up my old identity. And be okay with not knowing, be okay with this uncertainty. And this is where, you know, transformation is a great VUCA training, right? Because you're, and I mean, like, you know, it's like traveling so much because traveling is one of those experiences where you go leave your known place, right? You leave your home, you go into this weird in-between space, purgatory-like that's called airport, right? And then you go and fly through the <laughs> it heavens. Feels, it probably feels coven. a lot like purgatory, actually. <clears throat> it can feel like purgatory, right? If it's, especially if it's tourist time, right? Yeah. And then you fly through heaven in a silver coffin, right? And then you get dropped off somewhere else. And you're like, okay, who am I here now? Yeah. Right? In this new situation. And I don't know. Yeah. And my old self is not going to cut it. My new self is not yet there. So I'm in this in-between state. And this is where... Kierkegaard, and this is one of my favorite things, but Kierkegaard said, anxiety is a dizziness of freedom. Because right? in that moment when I feel anxious, all it's saying is who you are right now, or that the situation demands of you, is not congruent. And I can either now go down, or I can go down one of two paths in that emotional realm, right, in that second chakra, I can either go down to, oh, I'm shit, I'm horrible, I'm not good enough, I shouldn't even be here, I'm useless, I'm a piece of shit, right? And implode, ultimately, and not even wanting to be here. Yeah. Or I can say, great, you know what? I don't know how to handle this right now. Who would I have to be to not feel anxious right now? And by even thinking about who would I have to be to not feel anxious right now? In that moment, you're actually releasing the depression, right? You're releasing the possibility of becoming someone else. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, so you're not like, this would be the person that wouldn't be anxious right now. What does that feel like? Oh, it feels like this. And suddenly you'll be a little less anxious, right? And you grow. This is why the anxiety is your motor of evolution. And there's a reason we have so much anxiety because it's meant to move us. Emotions, motion are meant to move us. Right? Yeah. That's why the greatest antidote to VUCA is be open to VUCA. Brace Hello. It. Hello, Hello VUCA. VUCA. It's like living the vida VUCA. You know, start <laughs> dancing to it. I, I find dancing helps a lot, right? But keep it in motion, keep it moving. Yeah. Right? Come back to anxiety is in your body. It's not rational. Yeah. When your body tends to freeze. So if you actually move, literally, like yeah. um, stretch and move and dance around, yeah. it'll help you with your anxiety. Right? It will remind you to be back in your, going back to embodiment and physical, right? Yeah. Like finding your feet on well, the ground. I'm here. I'm here. I'm, I'm here. Present. I'm present. I'm here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. right now, I have all my limbs. None of my limbs have been chopped off, right? I'm not bleeding profusely. Like, sure. <laughs> you know I mean? notice with anxiety. I'm okay. Anxiety is very displacing. You know, mm -hmm. anxiety is very much a past to future experience so it's highly displacing so even just present moment awareness is is a you know is a great diffuser of of anxiety thank you for this thank you